Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Mirantis, where we break down the news on Kubernetes, the cloud native ecosystem, open source, and the wider world of tech. I'm Eric Gregory, and I'm your host for today. On this episode, we're taking a look at Prime Video's microservice to monolith story, or maybe it's a microservice refactoring. Then we'll dive into some cool new features in K0's 1.27, including WASM support and a neat bit of security hardening. We'll look at the latest release for JavaScript runtimes, Bun and Dino, and the role of open source large language models in the industry's ongoing AI tempest. So that's a lot. But first, a bummer note. My co-host Nick isn't with Mirantis anymore, and if you've been listening for a while, you know what a bummer that is. He brings an energy and perspective all his own, and the show definitely would never have existed without him. If you want to get in touch with Nick, I'd recommend connecting with him on LinkedIn. You'll find him by searching for Nick Chase, and I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. As for the show, John and I are carrying the baton, but schedule's going to be a little more irregular. When there's big news to talk about, or an industry event to explore, or major conversations to be had, we'll be there to dive in. Not so much a bi-weekly roundup, a little more like a semi-regular feature reporting, diving deeper into major stories or events. We're just going to have to see what kind of cadence we can manage, but I'm expecting something close to monthly for the time being. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, things you'd like to see us focus on, all of the above, you can reach me at egregory at mirantis.com. All right. Let's dive into the news. So the Amazon Prime Video Engineering blog caused a stir recently when it published a post on reducing costs while scaling up a monitoring service by re-architecting it from a microservices architecture to a monolith. In a time when many folks are talking about cloud repatriation or feeling exhausted with learning new cloud technologies or paradigms, it's no surprise that this story struck a chord. It's a fascinating, nuanced technical study, and a quick reading provides plenty of fodder for those frustrated with the cloud status quo. Amazon themselves are abandoning serverless for a good old-fashioned monolith. Well, uh, drilling down into the story can tell us a lot about the use cases for microservices. Unpacking the reaction to the story reveals the challenges many are facing in today's clouds. And all of this can kind of help us better understand what we need to consider when architecting and re-architecting microservices. So the Prime Video service in question monitors content streams for defects like audio video missynchronization. That means monitoring many, many concurrent streams. The first iteration of the service was highly distributed, consisting of a number of different components implemented as orchestrated serverless functions. But the large number of data transactions involved led the team straight into high costs and AWS account limits, or Amazon internal customers no less than you or I. As the Prime video post by Marcin Colney puts it, quote, we realized that a distributed approach wasn't bringing a lot of benefits in our specific use case, so we packed all of the components into a single process, unquote. In this use case, re-architecting into a single process meant consolidating media converter, defect detector, and orchestration components into a monolith that runs on EC2 and ECS, while cutting S3 storage out of the equation entirely since components can share video frames in memory. The post concludes noting that the monitoring service is now 90% cheaper. Colney adds that the decision, quote, whether to use microservices and serverless components over monolith has to be made on a case-by-case basis, unquote. Adrian Cockcroft, formerly of Netflix and AWS, argues that this is more a matter of refactoring a microservice than abandoning distributed architectures for a great monolith to rule them all. After all, this is a single monitoring service now being delivered via containers, not the Prime Video application as a whole. 
He adds that as far back as 2019, then speaking as an AWS VP of cloud architecture strategy, he advised optimizing serverless applications, quote, by also building services using containers to solve for lower startup latency, long-running compute jobs, and predictable high traffic, unquote. Sam Newman, author of Building Microservices, noted on Twitter, quote, this article is really speaking more about pricing models of functions versus long-running VMs than anything. Still a totally logical architectural driver, but the learnings from this case study likely have a more narrow range of applicability as a result, unquote. But that narrow range of applicability hasn't stopped folks from drawing some pretty broad conclusions. 37Signal CTO David Hanemeyer Hansen has garnered a good deal of attention in the last year by questioning many truisms and conventional wisdoms in the world of cloud. And uh, John and I have talked about that a fair deal particularly. Uh, he's detailed, for example, his company's anticipated savings as a result of repatriating from public cloud. In this vein, he leveled an iconoclastic broadside at microservices on the back of the Prime Video story, referring to the architectural pattern as a, quote, strain of intellectual contagion that just refuses to die, unquote and madness in almost all cases. Also a quote there. Uh, he later went on to say, okay, yeah, there are, there are probably some cases where it makes sense, but that broadside's pretty broad. Uh, you know, it's extrapolating a totalizing conclusion from a case study that has, as Newman points out, very specific context. Cockcroft observes, quote, there seems to be a popular trigger meme nowadays about microservices being oversold and a return to monoliths. And there's some truth to that, as I do think microservices were oversold as the answer to everything. And I think this may have arisen from vendors who wanted to sell Kubernetes with a simple marketing messages message that enterprises needed to modernize by using Kubernetes to do cloud-native microservices for everything. What we are seeing is a backlash to that messaging and a realization that the complexity of Kubernetes has a cost, unquote. And yeah, that backlash makes sense. Many teams are burnt out and don't want to learn new technologies or development patterns, especially if they're being mandated as part of a general migration rather than applied thoughtfully on a case-by-case basis. But frustration with today's cloud status quo is deeper and wider than the learning curve of Kubernetes. According to Insight Partners, small teams and individual developers are increasingly using small cloud providers like Versal and Fly.io rather than mega clouds. And why? They write that, Quote, AWS, GCP, and Azure are starting to look like Costco with too many aisles and value packs, unquote. And the developers want easier options that, quote, don't require a doctorate in cloud architecture. These developers are chafing at something very similar to enterprise teams struggling to build or migrate to Kubernetes-based microservices. It's a similar problem in turn to the one suffered by the Prime Video team in their monitoring services first iteration. Work on the application was overdetermined by the platform. Prime Video team chose a serverless paradigm in order to build their service quickly, but this meant an awkward workaround via S3 for transferring video frames at scale and dramatically expanded costs. The AWS serverless platform overdetermined the application. When the team reassessed the use case, they came to a different conclusion. Detractors are using this case study to cudgel the entire cloud-native paradigm, but it illustrates exactly why technologies like Kubernetes can be useful. Kubernetes provides a standardized layer of abstraction separating the cloud provider or other underlying infrastructure from application workloads. This is a big part of why Kubernetes was developed to prevent teams and their applications from being constrained by a particular cloud provider, tailor-made for an AWS environment and difficult to migrate elsewhere. But there are two important baseline realities that teams should consider when thinking about Kubernetes and building cloud-native applications. The first is Kubernetes alone is not a developer platform. 
Upskilling to use Kubernetes is a non-trivial lift. And even once you get there, you've learned to use a system that abstracts infrastructure, not a just-push-your-code developer platform. If you treat vanilla Kubernetes like a developer platform, if you expect it to act like a developer platform, you're going to feel some major friction. Friction, in turn, can lead to this not-a-platform over-determining your work on applications, slowing down progress, constraining developers to Kubernetes patterns or functionalities that they don't understand, and more. Kubernetes can make a fantastic foundation for a developer platform, but a foundation isn't a house, and understanding this will help you define your expectations and requirements accordingly. The second thing you need to remember is that a microservices architecture is a specific tool suited for specific problems. Kubernetes enables microservices and makes a very natural home for stateless apps communicating via REST APIs, but just because you have a hammer of Kubernetes doesn't mean that every problem is a microservice-shaped nail. And these conversations get kind of muddied by the vague and inconsistent ways in which we talk about microservices. As Cockcroft noted, the Prime Video team arguably refactored a microservice. At what level of granular component distribution do we all agree that we're looking at a microservice? The haziness here can kind of get in the way of clear thinking and discussion. For the purposes of this discussion, let's say a microservice is an application component or service that communicates with other components through simple protocols like HTTP, typically governing a self-contained piece of functionality and managed by a single relatively small team. Microservice architecture is an iteration of services-oriented architecture applied at micro scale rather than the macro scale of the whole enterprise, emerging from a more modern industry context that's both cloudier and populated by more and larger apps maintained by more teams. On the technical side, a microservice architecture can enable components with asymmetrical demand to scale independently of one another. On the organizational side, it means that separate teams can work on their separate and loosely coupled components separately, worrying much less about coordination and stepping on one another's feet with conflicting dependencies or toolkits. And in theory, teams can use the languages, frameworks, and so on best suited to their particular tasks. So those are real benefits, right? Real tangible benefits. And with the right planning and in the right use case, a microservices approach can really accelerate work. But those benefits don't come without costs, and microservices shouldn't be regarded as a default or a panacea. There are other approaches to cloud-native applications, including relatively monolithic applications deployed via container or VM. So if you're building or re-architecting a service and mulling your approach, here are some fundamental questions to consider. One, what are the facts on the ground for this service? Is demand on your various components likely to be meaningfully bursty or asymmetrical? Or might it be pretty steady and predictable? Do you have data that can speak to this? How large slash coherent is the team managing the service? Would distributing components make it more manageable and separate concerns? What are the service's external dependencies and what depends on this service? Loosely coupled isn't the same thing as uncoupled. How would distributing components for the service affect its interactions with other services? Two. What are the costs and benefits of distributing the components in question? For the Prime Video team, the initial benefit of using serverless functions was development velocity. That velocity came at the cost of AWS serverless limitations, and eventually they decided the costs weren't worth it. Even leaving aside the serverless element, a microservice model can accelerate development as well, along with the potential organizational and efficiency benefits we've already discussed. Based on your assessment of the facts on the ground for your service, these benefits might dramatically outweigh costs like increased complexity and logging challenges, or they might not be worth it. 
It's important to emphasize here that a microservices architecture can get very complicated very quickly with countless network calls flying around between countless endpoints for countless replicas. Observability and monitoring becomes extremely important, and investing in that observability becomes part of the cost of realizing microservice benefits. Third and last, what does your team's expertise support? What is your team's level of expertise and experience with microservices architectures? How experienced are they with Kubernetes and containers? Building or re-architecting microservices-based applications for Kubernetes can create lots of opportunities for pitfalls that may require costly backtracking or refactoring in the future. So hopefully that gives you a little bit to consider uh, and puts the puts the microservices versus monoliths and microservices to monoliths debate in a little bit of a frame. Now, shifting gears, though sticking with Kubernetes, our next story is the 1.27 release of K0s, the lightweight Kubernetes distribution that is particularly well-suited to edge environments. Mirantis sponsors K0s, so we're not exactly disinterested here, but I think this release deserves a double and triple underline because there are some really cool features here on top of the predictable bump to Kubernetes 1.27. Most interesting to me is the ability to dynamically reconfigure container D allowing you, for example, to easily use container runtime plugins to support Gvisor or WebAssembly. To make those two tasks even simpler, K0s includes a Wasm installer and Gvisor installer project, both of which publish images that are able to drop in all the needed components via pods. So essentially, you can just deploy those as a daemon set. When they run, they drop in all the needed binaries and configuration. And once K0 sees the config in place, it'll automatically reload container D with its new config. This dramatically simplifies configuration for a WASM-ready K0s cluster, which is super exciting, especially in edge environments, and definitely something I'll be talking about more in the future. The other highlight to note here is more of a build strategy designed to minimize vulnerabilities in the distributions components. The project accomplishes this by scanning upstream system component images for vulnerabilities, and then, when necessary, rebuilding those images in a way that mitigates as many known CVEs as possible. At release. System images shipping with K0's 1.27 come with zero known vulnerabilities, with daily scanning in place that lets the maintainers keep track of vulnerabilities as they pop up and mitigate them quickly. Over in JavaScript world, there are new releases for Bun and Dino with some interesting features in each. Bun 0.6 brings a bundler and minifier for JavaScript and TypeScript, and on the back of those features, the ability to build standalone executables for front-end applications. A release blog explains that the JavaScript ecosystem is too complex with too many module systems and language variants and ways to bundle for production, so the Bun folks reckon the answer is to bundle the bundler with their runtime. The blog by uh, Bun creator Jared Sumner acknowledges the irony with the heading, yes, a new bundler. At present, the bundler supports ESM modules and three runtime environment targets, browser, Bun, and Node. It also includes a minifier and tree shaking for cutting out unused code. My experience so far has been that this is all blazing fast as promised. The bundler is nice. Those standalone executables feel kind of like more of a novelty than anything else at the moment. You're basically getting the bun runtime bundled with your code. So a simple minified HTTP server trends towards 50 megabytes or so, kind of on the large side, though it bears playing around with some more absolutely. And uh, as we'll see in a moment, that the bundled size could be a little larger. Sumner posits the bundler as the beginning of a larger initiative to create a bun super API that lets users, quote, express any kind of app with bun with just a few lines of code, unquote. 
One example he offers is a static file server expressed as a call to this Bun app API with about 10 lines. You can read more on all of that at bun.sh slash blog. On the Dino side of things, release 1.34 brings compilation features of its own, expanding their already existing ability to build standalone executables with NPM support. So you can bring in node modules as desired. I found using this compiler nicer and less error prone than Bun's uh, with definitely much richer docs, but a standalone HTTP server comes to around 100 megabytes. So even larger. In addition to NPM support for compilation, Dino 1.24 also brings support for using TLS certificates that include IP addresses, which is specifically useful in a Kubernetes context. It also adds glob support in config files and CLI arguments. You can read more about the release at dino.com slash blog. Shifting gears from JavaScript to Python, the folks behind the PyPy repository are having kind of a rough go of it lately. Over the weekend of May 20th, the project had to close to new users, with the register reporting that PyPy had only one person on call to fend off malicious signups and code submissions. The Python Software Foundation's E. Durbin told the register that while there was an uptick in automated signups and uploads, this wasn't so much a you know, torrent of malicious code, uh, that, a really unusual one, as kind of a lack of personnel since two other team members were on leave and it would have been difficult or impossible for a solo admin to ensure that malware didn't stay up on the repository for too long. Meanwhile, on May 24th, that same E. Durbin published a blog on the PyPy blog disclosing that the Python Software Foundation had received three subpoenas for information about PyPy users, including names, uploaded packages, addresses, session data, and more. Durbin writes, quote, the privacy of PyPy users is of utmost concern to PSF and the PyPy administrators, and we are committed to protecting user data from disclosure whenever possible. In this case, however, PSF determined with the advice of counsel that our only course of action was to provide the requested data. I, as director of infrastructure of the Python Software Foundation, fulfilled the requests in consultation with PSF's counsel, unquote. He goes on to add, quote, the process has offered time to revisit our current data and policy, data and privacy standards, which are minimal to ensure they take into account the varied interests of the Python community. Though we collect very little personal data from PyPy users, any unnecessarily held data are still subject to these kinds of requests in addition to the baseline risk of data compromise via malice or operator error. As a result, we are currently developing new data retention and disclosure policies. These policies will relate to our procedures for future government data requests how and for what duration we store personally identifiable information such as, such as user access records and policies that make these explicit for our users and community, unquote. The post breaks down the scope and shape of the data that the Python Software Foundation felt they were compelled to share in some detail. So I definitely recommend reading the post if you're interested. And these stories are a reminder of how potentially fraught the fundamental work of repository managers can be. And once again, how much is often being done by quite a few people while being so critical to software supply chain security and development more broadly. We'll wrap up today's episode in the ceaselessly churning world of large language models and gender of AI. I don't want to reiterate the stories and debates you've already seen a hundred times over, but there were a few related stories over the last month or so that I think are worth pausing and dwelling on. First, on May 4th, the blog Semi-Analysis published a leaked memo sourced to a Google researcher called We Have No Moat and Neither Does OpenAI. This is using moat in the financy sense of capacity to maintain competitive advantage. 
In this case, the moat in question is meant to hold the fort against open source LLMs. And the memo touched off a lot of conversation in part, I think, because it feels sort of spicily counterintuitive. You know, isn't the very not open open AI dominating the space? Doesn't it take the cloud resources of a Microsoft to do so, running these vast, voracious models and making them available at scale? The Google memo writer says, nah, or more specifically, not for long. The memo reads, while our models still hold a slight edge in terms of quality, and this is a quote, <laughs> uh, the gap is closing astonishingly quickly. Open source models are faster, more customizable, more private, and pound for pound more capable. They're doing things with $100 and 13 billion parameters that we struggle with at $10 million and 540 billion. And they're doing so in weeks, not months. This has profound implications for us. Bullet point one, we have no secret sauce. Our best hope is to learn from and collaborate with what others are doing outside Google. We should prioritize enabling third-party integrations. Second bullet, people will not pay for a restricted model when free unrestricted alternatives are comparable in quality. We should consider where our value add really is. Third bullet, giant models are slowing us down. In the long run, the best models are the ones which can be iterated upon quickly. We should make small variants more than an afterthought now that we know what is possible in the less than 20 billion parameter regime. Unquote. The paper goes on to discuss the speed with which the open source community turned tuned and leveraged Meta's Llama model, which at the time had been leaked. Since then, we've seen the second of the stories I wanted to touch on, and that is Meta formally releasing Llama's code to the public. OpenAI and Google called the open sourcing dangerous, while according to the New York Times, Meta's chief AI scientist, Yan LeCun, called OpenAI and Google's closed proprietary approach a huge mistake and really bad take on what is happening. So here's a major difference in approach to open source that doubles as kind of a bare-knuckled competitive maneuvering. OpenAI and Google make a lot of hay over existential risk scenarios that make for good headlines while downplaying the simpler, more mundane and present-day risks of giving credulous users a black box that doesn't do what it says on the tin. You know, we've seen continued stories just this month of lawyers submitting chat GPT invented citations in court cases and health chatbots dispensing dangerous and potentially deadly advice. And those stories... You know, continue on and on. And the problem might be size. In an archive preprint ent uh, entitled Our Emergent Abilities of Large Language Models a Mirage, Stanford computer scientists Rylan Schaefer, Brenda Miranda, and Sanmi Coyejo uh, answer the eponymous question with a simple yes. The abstract reads, quote, Recent work claims that large language models display emergent abilities, abilities not present in smaller scale models that are present in larger scale models. What makes emergent abilities intriguing is twofold their sharpness, transitioning seemingly instantaneously from not present to present, and their unpredictability, appearing at seemingly unforeseeable model scales. Here we present an alternative explanation for emergent abilities, that for a particular task and model family, when analyzing fixed model outputs, emergent abilities appear due to the researcher's choice of metric rather than due to fundamental changes in model behavior with scale. Unquote. The team goes on to note that though three, through three different analytical approaches, they, quote, provide evidence that alleged emergent abilities evaporate with different metrics or with better statistics and may not be a fundamental property of scaling AI models, unquote. In other words, according to this paper, the benchmarking that many development teams and observers are using to measure LLM capability is creating artificial disparity between very large models and the smaller models that are more practical for you know, people who aren't Microsoft to train and run, like those open source models the Google memo is worried about from a business standpoint. 
Specifically, the paper claims that the way common benchmarks weigh near successful LLM responses versus exact matches underrates the outputs of smaller models. In an interview with The Register, co-author Rylan Schaefer, Schaefer says, quote, Emergent behavior is certainly a concern for model testers looking to evaluate slash benchmark models, but testers being satisfied is oftentimes an important prerequisite to a language model being made publicly available or accessible. So the tester's satisfaction has impacts for downstream users. Unquote. And then Schaefer adds, quote, but I think there's also a direct connection to the user. If emergent abilities are real, then smaller models are utterly incapable of doing specific tasks, meaning the user has no choice but to use the biggest possible model. Whereas if emergent abilities aren't real, then smaller models are totally fine so long as the user is willing to tolerate some errors now and again. If the latter is true, then the end user has significantly more options. Unquote. So the fundamental sort of techno-philosophical question remains, do you get sudden leaps towards something like AGI purely by means of linguistic capacity and massive training sets? Or do you hit a ceiling and what looks like emergent properties kind of evaporates as a mirage? That's interesting in the abstract, but the more pressing ground-level issue is how to grapple with the semi-competent, overconfident models that are flooding the zone now. And this is where the Unix philosophy of doing one thing and doing it well becomes relevant. Actually existing GPT-style LLMs are about as far from this philosophy as possible. They're a highly generalized tool built on highly generalized training data. As folks like Emily Bender have argued, the task they were designed for, emulating human discourse, is not actually a superset of many of the use cases this tool is being applied to, such as search. Which is why you have credulous lawyers showing up to court with piles of fake citations generated via ChatGPT. A smarter approach to AI may mean smaller open source-based tools built specifically to task. Whether we take that path, we'll have to wait and see. That's it for today. Subscribe to Radio Cloud Native wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the rest. I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has helped make this podcast happen over the last couple of years, including in no particular order, DJ, Lewis, Nika, Sharla, Dave, John, and of course, Nick. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.